rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. And today I have Mr. Stephen Pressfield with me on Zoom, as has as become a common place to talk to people. And I really appreciate, Stephen, you taking the time to do this. It's going to be a great conversation over the next 45 minutes to an hour. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me, Bob. I'm looking forward to it. Let's Let's plunge in. Yeah, for sure. Before we do that, there may be listeners who may not be familiar with who you are and uh, what your background is, but in order to bring them up to speed, I want to just give a little bit of a uh, bio, if you don't mind, because I think that's what's so interesting. You're, you're one of the most fascinating individuals that I follow and read about. After I read this bio, I want to unpack a little bit and kind of set the stage for what we want to talk about today. Okay. So Stephen Pressfield was an advertising copywriter. He was a school teacher. He was a tractor trailer driver, a bartender, a oil filled roustabout, an attendant in a mental hospital, a fruit picker in Washington state, a screenwriter. His struggles to make a living as an author included the period when he was homeless and living out of the back of his car. And they're detailed in his book, The War of Art. So your first book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, which was published in 1995 and was made into a 2000, a year 2000 film of the same name, which was directed by Robert Redford and starred Will Smith, Charlize Theron, Matt Damon. And then your second novel, Gates of Fire in 1998, is about the Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. You've taught at the U.S. Military Academy, at the U.S. Naval Academy, and the Marine Corps Basic School. And in 2012, you launched the publishing house, Black Irish Book, with his agent, Sean Coyne. Now, before, before we jump right in, I just think it's to me, it's encouraging because I'm at a similar age. Can you tell people how old you were when the your first book that was published? And since then, you've had, what, 17, 18 books? Uh, oh, actually, 20. The newest one is 20. I think I was 53 or 54. Okay. So okay. It was a long, long time. And for what I understand, Stephen, it was like 30 years that you struggled to find your creative outlet to be a writer. Is that, is that accurate? That's pretty true. I think it's, you know, 28, 29, something like that. From the time I first quit a job in advertising and tried to write a novel the first time. Mm, mm. There's one thing that, that people can say is that you're not tenacious. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I just know from reading your books, Let's unpack that a little bit. What is it inside of you, Stephen? And it's so helpful and encouraging that we live in a world that tells us that at, at 35, if you, if you haven't made it big or if you haven't made your millions by the time you're 40, you're never going to be successful. Or if you're an athlete, you're washed up by the time you're 35. Uh, and on and on it goes. You broke that, that barrier and continue to do that. Uh, and continue to, to, to do things and write books that continue to stretch yourself. What is it about that? How, what's inside of you that drives you to do that? That's a great question, Bob. <laughs> I'm not even sure I know. I mean, I'm, I am sort of, I guess I would say that when I've tried to do anything else, it's been a fiasco. And I've been, you know, just uh, at the end of the day, I'm so depressed another job, let's say, you know, that it seems to me that the only thing that kind of brings me peace of mind by the end of the day is, is having done my trying to, trying to do my work, you know, my writing work during the day, whether it's good, bad, or otherwise having put in the hours makes me, gives me peace of mind by the end of the day and nothing else seems to do that. Just on, on the subject of being an older person, my my mentor, a guy named David Ledick, I think he's now 91. Wow. And he could kick both of our butts <laughs> easily. And since he, he was successful all through his career, he was a, an advertising creative director. But since he quote unquote retired, I think he's written like 27 books. And he's produced plays that he stars in, you know, and that, that kind of one man plays. And my agent, Sterling Lord, is a hundred years old. 
And he just made the deal for my, my, my upcoming book that came out a couple of days ago, Man at Arms. He, yep. made, he made the deal for that. So there is hope for uh, <laughs> those of us who are past 22 years old. Yeah. I want to jump into uh, A Man at Arms. Uh, thank you so much for sending me that beautiful box with, with everything in it, and especially the books. That was really kind of you. And uh, I've been enjoying the book so far. So I want to jump into A Man at Arms. But before we do, I think it's really important, um, as I said, because so many of my listeners may not be familiar. Many of them are, as I've, I've mentioned to some friends of mine that I'm interviewing you, they were very excited. But then I did had a couple that were like, oh, that sounds fascinating. I want to learn more about him. You know, one of the things that we talk about on this podcast and have mentioned many times is this theme of the hero's journey. You know, Joseph Campbell kind of kind of coined yeah. that. And it's in other writings, people refer to the dark night of the soul. This, this seems to be an arc and a theme. And, and in your work, it seems to keep coming up and you mention it and it, you lived it out apparently in your own life and your own testimonial writings from the war of art and do the work uh, about some of your own struggles. Can, can we unpack that a little bit? Because I have so many friends and people that I've interviewed on this podcast that have been through their own transformations are in, are in the middle of it, or they're trying to understand what that even means because they have loved ones that are going through it. Am I um, making that judgment accurately of you? I don't want to throw yeah, uh, my, uh, my own issues on you, but that seems to be what I'm getting from a lot of no, your writing. You're absolutely right. And I'm a big believer that Hero's Journey is a piece of software that's in our unconscious from birth and that it exerts a pressure of its own upon us to live it out in real life. You know, mm. one of the things, you know, I worked for like 10 years as a screenwriter. And one of the, the, since Star Wars first came out, which was patterned after, you know, Joseph Campbell and the, the whole hero's journey, George Lucas made Luke Skywalker's journey be hit beat by beat, the hero's journey in, in Joseph Campbell's writings. Since that happened in Hollywood, almost any movie that gets written or produced is kind of held up alongside a paradigm of the hero's journey. And beat by beat, they sort of ask, you know, does it start in the ordinary world? Does the hero receive the call, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And does it finish with the hero kind of returning home? And, and these movies seem to always work. And I'm a believer in them. And I, you know, in, in my writing, I kind of apply that paradigm over anything I'm writing because I think it's real. It absolutely, we live our lives that way. And for, for me, I mean, I definitely had a moment in my real life. I mean, I think we have many heroes journeys. I think we have dozens of them, but there's probably an overriding one. And in my, the way I look at it in, in my own experience, you and I, we were talking about Richard Rohr a little earlier and the, the way he just defined, divides life into the first half and the second half. To me, what the hero's journey is about is that period when we've left behind some unsatisfactory situation, mm. a job that we've quit, a marriage, we may be in the military service, we may be in some working situation, whatever, where we come to a dead end and we, we've just got to leave it. And we sort of launch into the void and mm. then we stumble and bumble around for however long it takes years or whatever it is, having adventures, meeting allies, meeting enemies, et cetera, et cetera. And the hero's journey ends for me, the way I understand it, when we sort of come to the realization of what our calling is or who we really are. And at that point, which is sort of the equivalent of coming home, it's mm. kind of like the moment when Odysseus washes up on shore back at Ithaca after 10 years of traveling, you know, from the Trojan War. And at that point, I think this is that's the first half of, of life as Richard Rohr defines it, you know, establishing who the hell we are, you know. Yeah. And then the second half kicks in, in my view, and becomes a whole different thing. It's like now that we let's say speaking for myself. I reach a point where I say, okay, I'm a writer. Maybe I'm going to fail. Maybe I'm never going to succeed, but this is my calling. I can't do anything else. And now the second half of life or the, the becomes what I call the artist's journey as opposed to the hero's journey. Mm. And now we say to ourselves, okay, I, 
I, I know I've returned with a gift. What is my gift? If I'm a writer, what the heck am I going to write about? What is, what, what is my, and at that point, we start, we stop being free range individuals. And we're now like the Blues Brothers. We're on a mission, you know, whatever it may be. And we now start to ask ourselves, well, if I'm a writer, if I'm an artist, if I'm an entrepreneur, what business am I going to, you know, invent? And how am I going to make it work? How am I going to make myself into a professional that can get financing, that can endure adversity, that can rise again from failure, that can support my family, that can do this and this and this, and make this gift, make this dream come true. Produce mm. it in the real world, mm. not just in imagination. And I'm I know too far on that, Bob. No, no, great. no. That's that's really good because I like how you started in saying you feel like it's the software, it's the DNA. I definitely do. And that's interesting because we can there you write a lot about resistance in your books. I know in the War of Art and other of your nonfiction books, you, you talk about resistance. And as you're talking about coming home and you talk about coming home to our true selves, I feel like even in Jungian psychology, there's this ego and there's the true self. And it in this whole DNA software, you're talking about the humankind. I think many times I know in my own life, I can speak from experience is it's much more comfortable to live in the first half of life and to live in the ego and ignore that still small call of their, of our true self. That's saying, this is what I've always dreamed of. I dare not tell anyone, but you know, there's all kinds of excuses and you talk about how to overcome that resistance and get to it. Do you feel like, do you, I know everyone's different. Everyone has a different personality, but do you feel like that call, that resistance is also a universal theme? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And, and I'm not just making that up Bob, because I get, you know, I've gotten probably thousands of emails from people mm. Uh, who have read The War of Art or other books that I've written that are touch on that subject. And it's amazing. I mean, they're, everybody, of course, is different, but the theme sure. remains the same. People stuck in some unsatisfying iteration of life, a job, a family situation, whatever, who break free and then, and then have to fight all of the demons, the internal demons. And, you know, and then eventually, hopefully, they come home. And they and they arrive at who they really are, a sense of what their what their real destiny, what their real calling is. Mm. You know, just not to quote Richard Rohr again, but I do. He has so many quotable things. He talks about radical transformation, true transformation, and maybe we could even say, in this context, coming to our true self only comes from either great pain or great love. And I, I've always loved that because in my own life. And I, I think you could echo that knowing a little about your history is great pain. It's not fun to go through, but at the other side of it, there is a transformation that takes place. And I don't know if you could talk about that, but that's also seems to be the software in our DNA too. Yeah. That, that extreme pain and also extreme love, but, but people come through very different human beings on the other side. I mean, it does seem that if you, that that is necessary, some sort of, of a hitting bottom. Mm. You know, if you think of it in terms of, let's say, uh, someone that has an a problem with alcohol, which is sort of a classic example where they're in denial for years and years and years and kind of go farther and farther down, right? The typical story, they lose their family, lose their kids, lose their job, whatever, whatever. And finally, they hit bottom in some dramatic sense. You know, you wake up in a gutter, you know, in the morning with a bottle of Jack Daniels beside you. And at that moment, you, you finally wake up and face the truth. And at that moment, the, the person says, you know what? I have a problem with alcohol. I can't overcome it mm. by myself. And they say, I'm going to change my life. This, this is a moment for me. Everything's going to change. And if you think about stories like screenplays or, or novels, Almost every story follows that same pattern. And there's a reason for that because it, it's true. We, we live our lives that way. In, in Hollywood, there is a, there's a, a term for it. It's called the all is lost moment. Have you ever heard mm. of that before, Bob? Mm -mm. No. It's, 
you know, it's like it's it's so common that in a story that when 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 a writer is developing a story with a production company, they'll ask, well, where's the all is lost? No, you think you you think it's all over at that time? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. it's when it's it's when it's usually about two thirds of the way through the story. And immediately after the all is lost moment, which would be, let's say, the alcoholic waking up in the gutter, there's a kind of an epiphanal moment where the where the Mm. hero comes to a new realization and says, you know, I'm going to face the Terminator. I'm going to attack, you know, the alien is not going to defeat me on the spaceship, that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason it always works in stories is because it's so true in our lives, I think. Because again, if you, you were talking about the ego and the self, right? Which mm-hmm. I agree with completely. In the, in the first half of our life on our hero's journey, and this is Jungian right straight out of Carl Jung, right? We're stuck in the ego. We're in this place where we think, I'm the only person in the world. My concerns are the only things that are interesting, et cetera, et cetera. And we're being pulled to the deeper self, to the the wider self, but we resist it madly. And it's only when some catastrophic event or some great love makes, makes us say, okay, I give up. I can't do this anymore. And then we make the shift to the self, to the broader a view of the world and of ourselves. And oh, even in that, no, no, it's wonderful. It's wonderful because I love to, I'd love to hear your views on it. One of the things that I've experienced in my own life and talked to guests on, on this podcast is that while it, while it's a beautiful and needful and a transformation that, that is some, for many people, the equivalent of a chrysalis turning into a butterfly, it's a totally different world view that you come out with. It can also be very painful to those around you, to your existing structures, to your existing tribe, because you do seem to no longer fit. Is, do you have you found that to be true as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a typical it's a theme in in stories and in real life. You know, one of the things that when I talk about resistance in the war of art, and resistance I define as self sabotage, mm. as our our own self destruction. Right, when we are pursuing a dream, we're trying to make that move to a higher level, and we just haven't got the courage. You know, we freak out, we we blow things up. But there is also a thing as sabotage by other people. And usually it's the people who are close, closest to us. Because when we start to change, when we enter that chrysalis and we're mm. becoming a butterfly, it becomes threatening to the people around us. There are a bunch of guys that love to hang out at the bar and watch the Super Bowl and chase girls and drive fast cars and whatever, whatever, whatever. And one of those guys decides that he wants to be an artist of some Mm. kind or start a business of his own or whatever. Something honorable, something from his self, something from his deep soul. And so he now, let's say, let's say just as an example, he wants to build custom motorcycles. This is his dream. He's always wanted to do it. He starts to get his garage turned into a shop. He starts taking classes in welding. He starts taking classes in art, bump, 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 bump. What happens is his buddies will try to drag him down, will try Mm -hmm. to sabotage this effort. And the reason they're doing that is because they're facing their own resistances. They too have dreams that they're not acting upon. And when they see their friends starting to live out his dream, it becomes a reproach to them, right? If Joe can do it, why can't I do it? Mm. And so they will try to sabotage him and they'll say things just like like you were talking about bob they'll say hey man what happened to you you know we used to see you down at the bar every night you were a great guy we love you now you're getting to be a real pain in the butt you're serious all the time you won't come out with us chasing women etc etc right Mm -hmm. so a lot of times when we as individuals start on our true journey toward our true calling we have to leave people behind there are Mm -hmm. friends who were friends then that we can't be friends with anymore because they will drag us down. Mm. And that's a painful part of it. The upside of it is that once we start on our true journey, we make new friends and we start, we bring into our lives people who are also on a journey and who respect our courage 
and what we're in what we're doing and who will reinforce us and validate us and and assist us on our way so we make a whole new bunch of friends that from who we had in the past it's a painful aspect but it's true it is it is and you alluded to earlier about hitting rock bottom do you mind just maybe maybe touching on because i think your stories are so fascinating because you've done so many things in getting to your own journey of finding your own love of, of creativity and living that out and finding your muse. What, what was one, and I know we go through many of them in our lives, but <laughs> what was many, one? Many, many. Yeah. What was or, one or that just, one. Yeah, one. that sticks, sticks um, out. From the time I was maybe 24 to, let's see, 1937 or something like that. I, I tried to write novels. I worked a lot of other jobs and I wrote three novels. Each one took about two years full-time and I couldn't get them published, couldn't get them any, nothing, you know, zero. And I was driving a cab, living in New York City, when I finished the third one that I'd like poured my heart out into. And I couldn't even get my friends to read it. I mean, when I forced my friends to read it, they would get that plastic smile on their face, you know, and, and obviously it was just another fiasco, you know. And I said to myself, I just haven't got the guts to do this again. I've done it three times. I cannot do it one more time. And, and, and the, the prospect of not of letting go of that dream was just more than I, I could take. Mm -hmm. And I really was thinking about, you know, should I hang myself or should I shoot myself, you know? And, mm -hmm. which, and the only thing, reason I didn't do it was because I had a cat and I didn't know who was going to take care of my cat. Mm -hmm. So that was like an ultra low, low, low point for me where I just didn't know what to do. And, the, and again, that was an all is lost moment. Mm. And the all is lost moment in a story is always followed, like I say, by an epiphany. And my epiphany was, I just said to myself, why don't I go to Hollywood? Why don't I try to write for the movies? I've been failing as a novelist. Why don't I go out there and see if I can fail as a screenwriter? And because I said to my, I'd work in advertising. I knew what film was. I knew what a storyboard was. So that was a huge breakthrough for me, not a, com not a complete one, but I did pack up everything, including my cat and moved to Hollywood and then, and sort of repeated the same thing. <laughs> well, I know in Hollywood, you did write screenplays and you credit that to teaching you, you know, how to write and be a better writer and learn how to tell stories. And That's it was true. after that time that you published your first book that was turned into a film, The Legend of Bagger Vance. So again, that journey in and of itself, I'm sure we could talk for hours of the lessons that you learned under your mentors and but but we won't we won't camp there. Talk to me a little bit about the new book, uh, A Man at Arms. I've been reading it and I've also been reading some some interesting comments about it. And this was on I think Goodreads. It was just an individual who read it. But I, I love this quote. Listen to what he said. You may or may not have seen this. He says, when you finish this book, regardless of your profession, you will be faced squarely when, with an inescapable question. What do you believe in and how far would you go to protect it? Uh, um, I have not seen that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th I thought that was interesting. Certainly, <laughs> it's not the whole theme of the book. But there's this character in here, Telamon, which he's he kind of weaves his way in and out of many of your fictional books correct yeah he's the only recurring character that i have in in my fictional books yeah um, and and he crosses time periods and all kinds yeah. of things right yeah he, he seems to be alive in this in different eras this character telamon of arcadia the story is set in the first century a.d right a few years after the crucifixion and telamon is a character who has been in my other books set in the ancient world and he's sort of the equivalent of a Clint Eastwood gunslinger or mm -hmm. a samurai in a samurai movie. He's like a one-man killing machine of the ancient world. And he's sort of the, the supreme example, in my view, of a kind of, of, the, of a man who's in the warrior archetype. He's a man of violence. He's a man who has tasted victory, tasted defeat, fought for good people, fought for bad people, and has brought the sort of uh, warrior ideal to its, to its limits to the point where he can't stand it anymore. He's stuck, he's up against a wall. He doesn't know how to go beyond this. And he, in the, in the story, he takes a job from the Romans and the job involves the apostle Paul. Hmm. And 
Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which, as you know, is a, a book in the Bible along with other of Paul's letters. And he takes a job from the, from the Romans to stop the delivery of this letter. The letter is in the hands of a courier and on its way to Corinth in Greece. And the Roman Empire is afraid of this letter, among other letters of Paul's, because it's a new faith. It's something that can overthrow the empire. And in fact, it did overthrow the empire. So this is the, the story of this, this, this warrior who has really no belief in anything at all other than his own skills, who starts out on this assignment to stop the delivery of this letter, which is in the hands of, of a mysterious sort of a apostle-like figure and his nine-year-old daughter. Mm. And I won't say what happens, except he, do, he does change over the course of the story as he confronts these people and this letter. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it is a fascinating read. Is there a you know Telamon keeps popping up through these books? Is there some sort of metaphor for Stephen Pressfield and Telamon? Why is this so close to you? You know, that's a real mystery. I, I, I don't know, Bob, but there definitely is some connective energy there, and some. I mean, I always say that when you writing a book is like a it's like a dream. And the mm. characters arise, just like characters in a dream. And they're coming from your unconscious somehow. Mm. How maybe the deep, deep, deep collective unconscious, I don't know what. But and certain character every character in a dream is you, right? Maybe male, maybe female, maybe an animal, maybe anything, but it it's represents some aspect of your soul and some mm. aspect of your journey and sort of analyzing a dream is really about kind of deciphering that. But writing a novel is the same way. You start out, you don't even know why you're drawn to a certain story. You don't necessarily know why you, certain characters arise, but they, they have something to do on some level with your own journey, with issues of your own self. And I'm mm. not really clear exactly what <laughs> Telemans is with me, but why would this guy reappear in four different books when he's the only one the only character that's done that in, in all in all of my books. So somehow I, I consider myself an inner warrior. And I think, you know, his passage in this book, in a man at arms, is a passage from fear to love. Mm. And I think I think I'm on in some level, I'm on that on that same journey. Yeah. Yeah. Why in this point of your career after 20, 21 books, do you choose to interject this faith message, biblical reference, where that didn't really seem to be a theme that 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 was in your other books? Well, maybe it wasn't quite as overt. Sure. But it's it was, there for it sure. It's always there because I really feel like, and I think this is true for all stories, that you always have a hero in a story and the hero always has to change, right? The hero mm. has to go from A to Z. And when... And what, again, the all is lost moment, the hitting bottom, some sort of a some sort of a change, and the change is always, if it's going to really work, if it's a really a really good story, is on the soul level. It's mm. not on the behavioral level. It's not on the material level. It's not on the intellectual level. You know, if it's if it's a cowboy, if it's a detective, it's if it's a single mom, if it's you know whatever the hero is, they come to some. If it's Rocky, well, whoever. So. I think all of my books have been spiritual in that sense, and that the characters, when they reach the bottom, they reach that all is lost moment, they change on the soul level. But in mm. this in this story, for whatever reason, you know, it became more overt. I'll give you a little, just a side story here sure. that might have a reflection on this. A few years ago, my niece got married, and she asked me to be the officiant at the ceremony. And actually, my brother, it turned out, had already married them. But it was a secret kind of a thing. And this was like the public affair of it. So I had to kind of put together a little bit of a ceremony. And I went to the common, the book of common prayer mm -hmm. and pulled, you know, various, you know, quotes that I thought were, were great. And almost all of them came from Paul's letter, you know, first Corinthians. And so I somehow that went into my head. I just thought, this is this stuff is better than, you know, the four gospels, if you ask me. I mean, it really gets to the core of mm. what, of love, you know, of charity. Mm. And so somehow that must have percolated in me. 
and on some deep level. And when this story finally started coming together, I thought, ah, I've got to do something with those, with those quotes and with that letter. Mm. And it was this, this love, and again, not to give away anything, but that began to transform Telemann in some way. Exactly. Personified in another about, character. The hero's mm. journey. It's a, he actually, as I, as I was writing the book, I mean, absolutely thought I put sort of that paradigm of the hero's journey over his journey and made sure that, that he went through the, the progressions of it. And other characters, too, there, you know, went through that in the story. You know, the universality of what we've been talking about continues to fascinate me to this day, because if it is true, and I believe it is true, Stephen, as well, that it's the software and the DNA that whatever you believe, the universe, the creator, the, the, the race of beings that were before us, whoever put it into, into some sort of a mechanism that says this is how you get in touch with your true purpose and yourself, and it may be painful along the way, but it is the road of transformation. It begs the question that a couple of questions that I want to want to throw out there is, number one, I have found and talking to a lot of people on this podcast and reading and just evidence of my own life, is that transformation uh, from an ego-based life to a, a true self-life, it gets you and brings you into a bigger awareness of love. It gets you, brings you into a bigger awareness of how uh, mystery it can be embraced to expand your own creativity, loving of others, et cetera. It doesn't propel you into a narrow version of truth, but it actually expands the universe. Have you found that to be true as well? Yes, I couldn't agree more. You know, if you think of, if you say that we are spiritual creatures mm -hmm. who are in a material body, mm -hmm. if that's the reality of this material world, then the hero's journey being software in our, it, it makes sense that some sort of a paradigm would be built into us for how do we get from perceiving ourselves as purely material beings in flesh to perceiving and embracing our spiritual aspect, our souls, mm. right? And if you think of it, it's got to be painful. It's the chrysalis. It's the transformation from you know, the, the, to the butterfly, right? And, and when that happens, we, you know, they say a lot of times in stories, well, why did this character have to die? Why does one character have to die? We really love that. Why did you have to die? And almost always it's the, any character might not literally have to die, but they have to die a kind of a spiritual death. The, it's really the ego that's dying. It's that old self that, that, that skin that's being shed like a snake to, and it's the self, the ego that's dying so that the greater self can be born. Mm. And in a story, you know, it might be a like in Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart going from saying, you know, I'm the only cause I'm fighting for, et cetera, et cetera, to putting Ingrid Bergman on the plane and he goes off to fight the Nazis, you know? So that's, that would be, him moving from his ego self to his greater self, to, to, mm. to love for the community, to the greater good of, of everyone. And I think mm. that's the journey of all of us in this world. Sometimes we might not complete it, or we might be blind to it. We might not take it through all the way to its end. But if we are going to evolve in a positive way, that's the way we're going to evolve. Mm. Nobody mm. gets narrower as they evolve in a good way. They get wider. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and again, that's where the rub and the resistance comes with, you know, previous belief systems, other tribe members, yes. because, because we're also, I think we're also in some ways, and I believe we're also wired in our ego for certainty. And that seems to rub up against our true selves, which says, no, embrace mystery, embrace a bigger, wider view versus being so certain about things. Would you agree with that as well? Yes, I would. In fact, if you think of it in evolutionary terms, sure. and we go back to being in the, being in the primitive hunting band in the caveman mm -hmm. days, we all evolved 
and I know we've said many said have said this as tribal beings, right? Because mm-hmm. we were in a tribe when we were hunting mastodons or whatever it was. You know, it might be a tribe of 40 people, 80 people, something like that, right? And the thing about tribes is it's a very us versus them mindset, total ego mindset, where if you're in the tribe, you're one of us. If you're out of the tribe, you're one of them. And, you know, them are not human beings, right? We're in perpetual conflict with them, which is, I think, it's kind of a paradigm of what's going on in politics in mm-hmm. America today. But as we evolve and move into our greater soul, we begin to see the, the others, the tribe, the other, you know, if we're a Lakota Sioux, we might begin to see the Comanche as fellow human beings, just like us. Mm. And that's becomes a, a whole spiritual concept, you know, where the soul expands, where love enters the picture, where inclusion replaces exclusion. And mm. I think the human race is on that journey and is struggling mightily with it right now, all, all around the world. We see tribalism and narrow-mindedness and inclusion triumphant and the voices of, of inclusion are being um, drowned out by the, the sort of the fear that, that produces tribalism. You've, you've lived on this earth um, a little bit longer than I have. And do you feel, I ask this question quite often to my guests and I get interesting answers, but do you feel like there's some sort of global shift in consciousness, awareness, evolution, the human race that is taking place in the past 10, 15, 20 years? Or am I just recognizing it and growing myself? And this is the same question that people have asked for thousands of years. And maybe it's both, but it seems to be that we're in a time where people are rethinking so many things. And sometimes those questions end up, bring us to places that aren't good, i.e. January 6th. But then there are those of us who more and more are having these kind of conversations that's saying, you know, yeah, the hero's journey, I can relate. I'm getting in touch with that person. And I talk to 20 year olds. I talk to 30 year olds. I talk to even teenagers sometimes that are so far beyond their years than I was. Did, so I know I just threw a lot out at you. Uh-huh. I'd love to get your opinion. I, you said you thought it was both, and I do too. I think certainly throughout history, people have dealt with uh, or speculated about, is there a change? Is consciousness changing? But I do agree with you that definitely it's been changing in the last, let's say, since television or even, even before that, satellite communications, the internet. And the reason I think is that it was very easy let's say in World War II, if we're Americans in World War II living here and we're fighting against the Japanese, they just bombed Pearl Harbor and the Germans, it's very easy for us to put our mindset into, we're Americans, they're the bad guys, let's kill them all, you know? But when we now have television that takes us into other countries, shows us we have films that are made in other countries, the internet, we get to see the lives of others, we suddenly ha- can't quite have that exclusive point of view, right? We've got to say, you know, there was a great movie, an Iranian movie. I think it was called A Separation. Or, I forgot what it was called, but it was about a family dealing with a, a father that had Alzheimer's, a grandfather that had Alzheimer's. And when you watch that movie, this was like when we were at the, Americans were at the height of like, you know, we hate everybody in Iran, you know, they're, and you see this movie and there's no way you cannot have empathy. There's no way you cannot relate to the people. There's no way you cannot say they're exactly like me. They're doing this, struggling the same. And so your consciousness, it's sort of painful. You have to expand it. It's like, you got to go, wow, I used to hate these guys and it kind of felt good to hate them. I guess I can't do that. And I think Mm. what's happening now is a reaction to that. Mm. The pendulum is swinging back. I think even ethnic and racial groups within the United States, our fellow citizens, there are a lot of movies, there are TV shows, there are things where we go into the lives of people who don't look like us, right? Mm. And we can't but conclude that they're like us. We're all fellow human beings. We all want our children to be happy, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's, that's been more than a lot of people could handle. Mm. It's too much. And so this pendulum has swung back. 
and said, you know, at least partly in this country, I don't want to hear about these other people. I don't want them, you know, considering themselves real Americans. We're the real Americans. Kick them out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So are we evolving? I hope so. But it's like first there's an action, then there's a reaction against it. One step forward, two steps back, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, I've heard other people say it's kind of like childbirth. It's like it's painful to get there, like the hero's journey. But uh, these are necessary pains to to work yeah. through these it's things. It's really like dying and being born again, right? You have to mm-hmm. slough off that old self, and it's painful, and people don't mm. want to do it. You know, another roar, uh, roarism I would say is he would say that this process is not something you choose or plan, but it's something that's done to you. I wish that there were ways, and this is my own feeble attempt to do that, to teach and inform and have people be open. But I know in my own life, it's something that happened that's done to me versus something that I just say, you know what? I think I'm going to get more in touch with my true self today. (laughs) There has to be that point where you're like, okay, now, you know, the teacher will come when the, when the student is ready. Right. Yeah. Have you found that to be true? Life will be the teacher, you know? Mm. I mean, I, I've been in a bunch of conversations kind of like this and I wonder how useful they are because if you're, it's almost like if you haven't undergone what we're talking about, there's no way to sort of will it into being, you know, it's going to, it's just going to happen of itself in your life. It's only if you've already undergone it and you're trying to make sense of it, that a conversation like this can sometimes be helpful because you say, wow, these two guys are talking about exactly what happened to me. And if it happened to them, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe this is a a greater pattern than, than just limited to me. That's the biggest, honestly, that was one of the biggest motivators for me was I wanted to provide a place where, because you can, if you don't have people around you that have been through it, or if you're in a tribe that might be a little more structured, that does have a lot of absolutes or what they feel as absolutes, it can be very lonely. And you can ask questions like I did. It's like, am I going crazy? Um, (laughs) What's happening to me? Um, I'm not, I no longer connect with so many people that I thought I connected with. And so in that sense, I think it's really helpful to, to let people have those, those spaces. That leads me to the next question is, given what we just talked about the last couple of minutes, are there practices? Are there is there advice for someone who might be listening to this, who's saying, you know, that rings so true. I'm in this what you call shadow careers, which we may or may not get to that today, but you know, I'm doing something I don't really love. I've tried to do what I really love and I've given up on that dream, but you guys are talking about something that I deeply long for in my heart of hearts. What, what advice can you give to say what are principles? What are ways to go from giving up on your dream to Maybe I'm not too old and I can get there. It's, it's a, well, here's like the most practical of all things. I'll, I'll give a, a practical thing and a non-practical thing. The practical thing is that James, James Patterson, the novelist, I think that's his name, James yep. Patterson, mm-hmm. used to be the, the, the creative director of J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency, big aid agency in New York. And he used to go in and he wanted to be a novelist. And so he would go in in the morning at five or 5.30 into his office, lock the door and for an hour and a half or whatever, he would write his work on his novels. And then when the bell rang, you know, it was time to go to work. He'd open the door and he put on his other hat, his creative director hat and he'd go to work. Hmm. And what I'm talking about is compartmentalization that it is possible if you're in a career where you, you can't really leave it, you've got a family to support or whatever to carve out an hour, two hours a day, or time on weekend and 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 pursue your career, pursue your your dream career. That's kind of a practical thing. I mean, I did that, you know, in many stages, many times, and it's a it happens. You know, people do that all the time, and it works. I mean, James Patterson, it, it worked for him. That's that's one thing I would say. The other thing, and this is a little, is pay attention to your dreams. Hmm. I mean, the dreams that you have at night, and I'm very much a believer in that. 
on this. It's our soul, our unconscious, our Jungian self communicating to us via dreams. Dreams are not just stupid stuff that we, mm. that goes through our head at night. A lot of times dreams have saved my life. They've been signposts along the way, you know, where I feel like if you think of having a mentor, the mentor is in your own heart, you know, and there's a wonderful book that I've recommended. You probably know this, Bob, it's called Inner Work by mm. Robert Johnson, the Jungian mm -hmm. therapist. Mm -hmm. And it's about how to analyze dreams. It's kind of a simple way of interpreting your dreams. But I believe that that inner self, the soul, the Jungian self, first of all, is much wiser than we are. Mm. And secondly, wants only to help us, wants only to guide us onto the path. And it's to me, it's infallible. You know, it's like having a personal savior or something like that. So I would say to anybody that's in a in a state of anguish and, and, and indecision and torn, pay attention to your dreams because a lot of times they will, they will tell you, you know, do this, don't do that, whatever. Taking that a step further, I have read and seen, I know I've read other authors who believe the same thing. I've heard you say that the, not only does that true self only want what's best and, and actually wants to produce whatever creative outlet dream that you have in your heart. But actually there's some sort of spiritual mystical power to that that says, you know, your book, for instance, A Man at Arms, it existed somewhere either in yourself or somewhere out in the ether. And you have, you had the opportunity to produce that, but somewhere that, would have been produced, whether through you or for someone else. I, I've heard Mark, I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert writing in her book. Yeah. She, she talks about that. Yeah. She says, you know, I had the exact idea. I had characters and I just didn't do anything about it. And I ran into someone a years later who had written the book with the exact same character, exact same setting, exact same. It was just eerily, which just confirmed to her that this muse is something more than just, oh, this is a good idea. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I believe that completely, you know, that mm -hmm. we are, our real life happens way below the surface, like an iceberg, you know, or, or a super tanker, you know, where so much of the, of the hull is beneath the surface, you know, you only see the very tippy top. And, and that's, that is a kind of an underground river of our lives of that. That's where our work comes from. If you're thinking of, uh, for me, the books that I write, that's where it comes from. And I believe that they were all there before I wrote them, just like Elizabeth mm. Gilbert says, or Bruce Springsteen's albums were all there. And the whole skill of an artist, I think, a writer or songwriter or whatever, is to access that, that underground river and then, and then to bring it forth into daylight. Mm. Wow. That's so good. Yeah. That's so good. Do you believe that everybody, Stephen, has some sort of artist in them? Definitely. I mean, it might not be the traditional, you know, mm -hmm. painter or whatever it is, but it's, but it's something, it's something that is a gift to, to others and a gift to the world. It's something that is, is a sharing of, of our common humanity one way or another. A mother is just a, is a classic artist. I mean, a mother brings something forth, mm. creates new life and guides it all the way through. Somebody that would find a neglected, vacant lot in the neighborhood and get together a group of people to turn it into a little park, that's art to me. Within families, there are people who are peacemakers, right? Mm. There's somebody that holds the whole family together, like maybe a grandmother or something like that. And maybe she doesn't do anything else doesn't have a job, you know, it's kind of crazy, but that's, that's her art. And so I, I do think it's that all of us have, have a calling. I mean, we all have souls. Our souls have to express themselves and they're going to express themselves in the form of love. Mm. Mm. Wow. That's so good. Stephen, thank you for taking this time. I want to spend the last couple of minutes talking a little bit about where people can get uh, a man at arms. I know uh, they can go to Amazon. Any any other recommendations? Is there is there a book website for this book specifically? Uh, there is there. I have my own site, which is amananarms.com or my name, stephenpressfield.com. And it okay. just it, it has kind of 
if anybody wants to know what the book's about and et cetera, et cetera. And we have a bunch of bonuses and prizes and incentives and stuff like that. We get people to buy. But okay. That's, that's a man, where that is. A manatarms.com. You can go check it out. If somebody wanted to know a little bit more, obviously at stevenpressfield.com, they can learn more about your books and, and info. But if somebody wanted to know more about your nonfiction book, because I feel like this book right here, The War of Art, is should be required reading for every child in school because it's not just about art in the classic sense. It's really about being a true human in all its in all your fullest forms. And you talk about how to break through that resistance, which at its very base level is living out your true calling on this earth versus according to your ego. Yeah. And so I think the war of art, how can people learn more about that? Is it, I'll just go to stephenpressfield.com yeah, as well. Actually, I'll give you, here's a, there's a trick to this. <laughs> if okay. you go to stephenpressfield.com, Right now, everything on the, in what they call a splash page is about a man-at-arms. But in the upper right-hand corner, there's an X. And if you click on that X, it'll take you to the underlying website, which is about the war of art and all the other sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, someone explained to me that what a splash page is. Are you familiar with it? I'm in the advertising and marketing world. I work ah, in an so agency. You know. Yep. Mm -hmm. I never I never knew what it was, but they explained to me that like if a if a rock and roll band has a website and it's all about their tours and whatever, and then they release a new album, what they'll do is they'll do a page that's only about the album, and that becomes a splash page and that goes right. sort of overlays the other website. But then if you click the X up in the right hand corner, it takes you to the underlying website. Yeah. So anyway, that's right. That's that's, that's what we're doing now. That's awesome. And can you give us any hints on what's next? Are you writing any more novels or getting back into nonfiction or just um, kind of? I'm a believer not talking about stuff, Bob. Like, well, <laughs> You've well, been in LA too long. You know, you don't want to <laughs> open up the oven you know, while you're cooking something. Okay. Yeah, so something is cooking. A bunch of more stuff coming. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm thanks not again. Finished yet. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I'm, I'm sure there's 10 more books in you at least. So. Thank you for your time, Stephen. I appreciate it. I know you're busy, but I know our, our listeners appreciate it. And hopefully um, this book will just sell millions and we will see a movie of A Man at Arms soon. Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the great questions. Absolutely. And, uh, we'll do it again sometime. Okay. Talk to you soon. All Bye -bye. right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.